It was a license to kill. He was one of America's most notorious mob bosses. He was violent. He was feared by many. But he accomplished the almost unimaginable. He got government agents to give him the ability to kill whomever he wanted. Welcome to Crime Waves. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Crime Waves. I'm Declan Hill, an associate professor of investigations at the University of New Haven. And each week, myself and my students, and today it's Brigitte Hairston and Alexia Miller, we bring you an interview with one of the world's best criminal investigators. And this week, it is the incredible, mind-blowing story of Whitey Bulger and his Winter Hill gang in Boston and how they basically ran the organized crime squad of the FBI and elements of the Boston police force for over a decade. The man telling us this story is the award-winning author and professor of journalism at Boston University, Dick Lair. Dick is a former member of the Spotlight team of the Boston Globe and a Pulitzer Prize finalist in investigative reporting. He's also the author of seven award-winning books and he spent over 20 years exposing this story of extraordinary corruption with his co-author, Gerard O'Neill. And their two books, Whitey, The Life of America's Most Notorious Mob Boss, and Black Mass, Whitey Bulger, The FBI, and A Devil's Deal, are brilliant. And they led to a film adaptation starring Johnny Depp and Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, in this podcast, we touch on that film, we also touch on my professional passion, uh, match fixing and illegal sports gambling. But we really focus on that license to kill and how Whitey Bulger, a mobster, was able to get that from corrupt FBI agents. So Dick Lair joins us on Crime Waves. Dick, it's a great honor to have you on Crime Waves podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. It's good to be, to be with you. Brother, let's just get started right away. It's September 17th. It's 1981. Debbie Davis is in a car with a hitman for the Winter Hill Gang in South Boston. What happens? Tell us that story. Yeah, Debbie Davis, who is a stunningly beautiful young woman, is um, with Stevie Fleming. Um, um, and they've been dating on and off for years. Um, Stevie's jealous about losing her to another man. Um, and Stevie is partners with, you know, the legendary Boston gangster Whitey Bulger. Um, Debbie Davis, from Whitey's perspective, has become a problem. Um, How so? Whitey, What's she doing? Well, Whitey has learned that Stevie has maybe told her too much about some of their underworld activities, their businesses and whatnot. So she's become a liability. Um, and Whitey's um, go-to solution to these types of problems is to get rid of them. And so he has set up this situation where Stevie Fleming in that car is driving Debbie Davis um, to a house in South Boston that Stevie has bought for his mother. 
And it's supposed to be this very casual encounter where, come on, Debbie, I just want to show you my, my mom's new house. Um, and in one of the you know strangest twists, there are so many in this very um, insular Boston world, that house that Stevie has bought for his mother, he's really done that, is actually next door to a, a, a Whitey Bulger's brother's house. So there's, it, it's incestuous in that way. Right. But they drive up to the house um, in South Boston and unbeknownst to Deborah Davis is uh, waiting inside uh, is not a realtor of any kind, but a, a uh, is, is Whitey Bulger. Um, and after she steps inside with Stevie, uh, again, just thinking she's checking out a house, uh, she, she meets the end of her life. Uh, Whitey and Stevie kill her. Um, problem solved. Um her body is buried in a basement of another South Boston home where other bodies uh, have been buried and eventually are buried. And it's part of Whitey's world. And and what I found so sickening about this brilliantly written story that begins your uh, book, your, along with Gerald O'Neill, was fantastic. Anyone listening and watching this, you've got to get this book. It is riveting. Absolutely riveting. From page one. But is your description of this scumbag, and I, I, I hope that's not an insult to any scumbags listening, is Steve Flemmy, who is who brings his girlfriend over, presumably, sweetie, darling, come on in, check this house out for my mother. And then they kill this poor kid, this woman, and he pulls her teeth out with pliers. What's that all about? Well, that's in the event that, uh, that she hopefully could never be identified if her corpse is eventually I, you know, discovered and whatnot. Um, it's part of the Whitey Bulger plan to, you know, leaving no stone unturned or no tooth unpulled um, to leave any trail that could lead to him. And it, I think it really speaks to the theme um, that, that these aren't glamorous guys. One of, the, one of the things that really irritates me, I'm sure it irritates you as well, is that organized crime figures are often betrayed in this sexy fashion, you know, the nice suits and stuff. But here is a man who is bringing his girlfriend in with, you know, I presume endearments. And a few minutes later is literally pulling this woman's dead, the teeth out of this dead woman's body with pliers. Right. Yeah, no. And it's, and it's not an isolated incident. Um, the, the utter depravity um, that is part of these guys' life and practices as gangsters and killers um, tell us about that. Uh, tell us about that empire that they built in South Boston. Yeah, well, I mean, Whitey was, you know, um, he he rose through the ranks rather quickly, quickly and fearlessly, um, and was feared throughout the city um, as a young man and and all through his his life, he was feared by the Italian mafia, um, which in Boston had you know was the most powerful organization. Um, Whitey was in many ways a cult of personality. I mean, he had an outfit in an organization. I would liken it to a closely held corporation, though. There was just an inner circle. And then there was everybody else out there who, you know, either obeyed what he said or lived in fear of him. Um, and I mean, and Dick, he lived how Sorry, I've, I've, I've maybe interrupted you, but I was going to say, how do these guys make their money? Is it all drugs or is what are they doing? Well, they moved into drugs during the high flying eighties. Um, but in the beginning it was the classic, uh, you know, gangster portfolio, um, you know, um, loan sharking and extortion, 
um, um, bookmaking um, and requiring businesses to pay them uh, fees for protection or rent or the, the right to do business in a particular area. And and some um, of that business included burglary, it included all those other things, like all the crime guys were having to pay a tax to Whitey Bulger's gang. Yeah, and that's where he kind of evolved in a uh, in a kind of <laughs> smart executive way in terms of, you know, the uh, criminal mind um, is, well, he was always capable and, and did what uh, in, in throughout a hands-on executive in terms of being able to threaten or kill somebody. Um, he evolved where just by virtue of his fear and his power of not getting his hands dirty in the day-to-day, but just making sure everyone paid him. And if you didn't pay him, you're, you know, your life's at, at risk. Um, you know, my passion, at least my professional passion, is sports gambling and illegal bookies. Um, tell us a little bit, because uh, a number of people who follow this um, podcast really are into this as well. Tell us a little bit about that empire of illegal sports gambling in Boston at that time. Yeah, it was a racket that obviously Whitey was involved in, but also the mafia in a big way. Yes. Um, and this obviously predates, you know, legalized betting and all that. And there were just, you know, bookies all over town and stores and whatnot and um, who, who took in place bets. Um, and it worked its way into whether it was the Angelo crime family in the North End as the mafia or into into Whitey's world um, where the, they, they were getting a piece of the action and had to you know juggle the payoffs and all that kind of thing. Um, and so there was the gambling operation itself, which was, you know, a, a, an ongoing and continuous business enterprise, you know, criminal business. Yes. But then they also found create other creative ways to tip the scales and to, um, of, of, in certain sporting events, um, where they could, I mean, they were uh, fixing, fixing and, and, you know, maximize their own positions and profits and now we're talking about my field tell tell us uh, yeah. one of those cases of match fixing please yeah in the, in, in the mid to late 70s um whitey who at that point was part of what was known as the winter hill gang named after a neighborhood in somerville mass yes. just outside of boston um which is where their headquarters was um they teamed up or uh, with a a um, horse race fixer by the name of anthony fat tony chula <laughs> okay um, and throughout the mid to late seventies, uh, it was a hugely successful operation where, where Tony was sort of the guy in the ground who had access into with the jockeys, the horse jockeys, um, and the pre-race and with the backing of the Winter Hill gang, with the backing of Whitey Bulger and his cohorts, um, would pay off jockeys to, you know, to have the outcome of the, of the race be preordained, um, and those who didn't want to go, go along, uh, again, faced the wrath of, of, of the gang. Um, and so they made an enormous amount of money off of that uh, at, at horse race tracks up and down the East Coast. I mean, which um, I think obviously illustrates that we're not talking when we're talking about the Bulger gang of some kind of, you know, local neighborhood street corner yes. outfit that, yeah. that uh, maybe controlled a few square blocks of a city. No, I mean, they had big, and this is the late seventies. I mean, they had, you know, outreach up and down, you know, horse track up and down the East coast. They, they also moved into that Mexican 
squash-like game, High Lie. There was a world High Lie based out of Miami, Florida, and they were extorting and racketeering there. Tell me a little bit about that, please. Yeah, and High Lie was a sport with the High Lie Frontons. There's one yes. in Connecticut and Florida. That, that again, it was in the um, you know uh, 80s when it became a popular sporting venue uh, and betting venue and whatnot. Um, and Whitey exploited um, an entree um, into a company that was known as World High Lie that owned a couple of frontons, especially the one in Florida, um, because there was a Boston businessman by the name of John Callahan um, who was in business and finance and had been an and was an executive and president, president and part owner of World High Lie, who fashioned himself as kind of a wannabe gangster who liked to pile around. He hung around at a place called Chandler's Inn in Boston, which was a wise guy hangout. Right. And there he became friendly with Johnny Moderano, who was a hitman for the Bulger gang. He became friendly with Whitey Bulger. Um, and they concocted this scheme and it involved money laundering and skimming and whatnot, where um, the, the high life frontons, which were enormously profitable, that, um, um, that they would begin skimming uh, money uh, on a regular basis. And Callahan was their fixer in that, the inside guy. Uh, who managed the books and 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 juggled the accounts that way, to to um, profit the Bulger game, and in return, um, kind of the world went out, to, you know, because a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of um, uh, you know organized crime, criminal in infiltration into sports and sports betting. Yep. Um, and the payoff for for Callahan and and World Highlight was the word would would go out is that don't mess with this company because. Bulgers. I mean, the Bulger gang, um, it's, it's there. It's behind them. It's okay, behind. Dick, we've got a case of scumbags, real scumbags, running a, a massive criminal enterprise empire based in South Boston, but has tentacles all across the city and up and down the eastern seaboard. Then the FBI gets involved, a guy named John Connolly, and the, the story now gets super weird, really weird. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, because... I mean, simultaneously to the events that we're talking about, you know, yes. the late 70s and the early 80s, um, one of the things that Whitey Bulger had going for him um, that made him unique and why we call him um, America's most notorious mob boss um, is because he had an asset. He, he, had, he had achieved something that I don't think any any how crime boss in American history has ever achieved any, and, you know, no matter who it might be, Dillinger or Capone or any of the, you know, names that just pop off your tongue. I mean, Whitey Bulger had the FBI at, at his back, namely through FBI agent John Conley. Starting in mid 1975, they cut this unholy alliance. What, what, how did this unholy alliance, I mean, what were the details of the unholy alliance? Were there, what was going on? Okay. Well, uh, again, a lot of this has to do with, you know, crim you know, American, the history of American crime, uh, the history of the FBI. Um, and this, again, black mass falls right smack in, in sort of the, the context of that larger historical arc. You know, in the 60s, un until the early 60s, um, Hoover's FBI, uh, which had made its name off of solving bank robberies, you know, in, in the 20s, the gangsters of that, yep. that era, um, was in denial and denied that there existed uh, an organized crime Italian mafia, 
you know, the mafia for the longest time until the early 1960s um, when it was no longer undeniable. And that's when Attorney General uh, Robert Kennedy um, made going after the mafia, um, the FBI, the government's high number one priority. All right. The FBI, though, was had to play catch up uh, in a big way. They were behind way behind um, right. in, on this front. And so what you saw in, in throughout the 1980s and what we've learned through the Boston uh, corruption and the Boston experience is that there are. The, you know, they were creating organized crime units in, in FBI offices around the country. And in Boston, a couple of key agents, uh, the original uh, members of the organized crime unit in Boston, two agents by the name of Paul Rico and Dennis Condon. Um, um, it's amazing that they even had badges. I mean, they were they were lawless. And their idea of trying to play catch up was was to install illegal bugs in the mafia headquarters to gather the intel to help them catch up in the situation. Paul Rico especially um, forged alliances with with criminal informants in which he protected them from any kind of police uh, involvement. Um, but they but said John, Con John Connolly went way further than Rico in the 1960s. I mean, he essentially became. A member of the Winter Hill Gang. Exactly. Please, he he becomes, and I'm just trying to set the stage because it was, because Rico and Condon set the stage, set the tone for a culture of lawlessness, lawlessness inside the FBI. Yes, Conley sir. actually worked with them. He learned in a way from his they were his teachers, his mentors of sorts. So when he came back, John Conley, who, who was a native of South Boston, his family actually lived in the same housing project as Whitey Bulger's family. Um, they had a again, they had this long family history, personal history. John Conley grows up, goes to college, becomes an FBI agent, is assigned elsewhere, comes back to Boston in the early 1970s when all of this is happening. Yes. Get the mafia, get the Italian mafia. Um, if you want to be in John Conley's incredibly ambitious agent, if you want to be a star FBI agent, you're a handler of underworld informants who are fighting the mob. All this came together as a constellation of things that came together for John Connolly to approach Whitey Bulger in 1975 to team up. OK, the mafia is your enemy. It's our enemy. You know, um, you help me. I'll help you. Um, in the beginning, I don't think John Connolly imagined how far, how deep and dark and dirty it would go. He was looking to, you know, become a star. Uh, and to go after the, you know, the, the North End Italian mob. And Whitey was uh, not quite yet, you know, the uh, boss that he soon became. Um, he was a high ranking member of, of his gang. So uh, to have him and his partner Flemmy to become informants was a huge cachet. So they kind of cut that deal in 1975. But very quickly, it went bad because Whitey how did how did it go bad? Because Whitey's, you know, he's a brilliant, you know, a, a crime boss, a gr brilliant criminal mind. Uh, and he turned, it's, it's more, you know, ideally it's the agent who turns the informant to become a government source. Um, uh, Whitey Bulger very quickly turned Conley into becoming his informant about government activities against him and his gang. And what flows from that 1975 unholy alliance is it, it 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 develops into the worst informant scandal in FBI history, where Whitey Bulger could count on Conley 
and other agents in that organized crime unit, yes. they essentially became members of his gang, not only um, you know, alerting him to um, state police, other federal agencies like the DEA, anyone who was going after Whitey, um, um, Conley blew the, you know, was a whistleblower of sorts. For, for hang, on, hang on, hang on. You mean John Conley and the other corrupted FBI agents would tell Bulger about other secret informants? Yes. Tell them about perhaps seek other investigations or that there's actually a wire being put on you or, you know, a place where you go or your car. So to be mindful of that, but also um, leak the identities of other, un, you know, people, others in the underworld. who whoa, have whoa, whoa, whoa. They, He leaked the identities of other informants. What happened to those poor people? Yeah, uh, they ended up dead. Again, the Whitey solution. It's like what we started off with, with Deborah Davis. Um, a potential problem is to is to be eliminated, um, which is why John Conley ended up in prison. Um, in connection, again, looping back to that World Highlight case. Yes. And John Callahan. Um, you know, that, after being so enormously profitable for a while, got complicated for Whitey and... The, uh, and the gang, where it led to uh, the gang having to murder the new owner of World Highlight, a, a man by the name of Roger Wheeler, a Tulsa, Oklahoma businessman and millionaire, because he had taken over the company, even though Callahan was still involved, um, their inside guy. Um, and they became very worried about, um, you know, their cash cow. Just a sec, Dick, before we go back to Highlight, mm -hmm. let's, let's make sure that we we get our viewers and listeners to, to, to grasp this. Conley and other organized crime FBI members, agents, <clears throat> get the names of secret informants, other secret informants, and they tell Whitey Bulger who these guys are, and these guys end up dead. Yes, I know. It gives you, gives you a big pause, right? You have to go back and like, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, because this is, this is blood. This is death. This is people's murder that they're... I mean, this is beyond, hey, I made an administrative mistake and I didn't pay, blah, blah, blah. This is like people dead. How many, how many informants, how many people was that flow of information from corrupted FBI agents to Whitey Bulger? How many, how many killings were there? Well, One, according two? to, uh, there are at least, two, well, three, four maybe. Uh, I don't really remember the, you know, at the top of my head. I, and this, according to Flemmy, who ultimately, um, and, and Johnny Moderano, uh, members of the game who have ultimately testified at no, numerous hearings and trials, and, and Kevin Weeks, who was an enforcer, yes, and all turned against uh, Whitey, um, you know, in, in the 21st century. Um, they graphically described um, uh, the depths of this unholy alliance um, and, and the benefits for the gang. In, which involved just what you summarized. And in terms of the whole unholy alliance, and I love that term, uh, how many members of Boston law enforcement, FBI, Boston police, state police, whatever, how many people are taking gifts, bribes, money from Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang during the late 70s and, and throughout the 1980s? Well, if um, according to Flemmy and Weeks and, you know, and their testimony, we're talking about dozens um, and they had what they called an X fund, or an expense fund that um, uh, where they regularly doled out payoffs. And there's different degrees of 
the compromise. Yes. Um, um, you know, the most widespread were these just bribes and payoffs um, to Boston police and, and other, um, you know, police agencies, you know, and, and whatnot. Um, and in return, you know, you know, some basic information, street information or whatever, just some, some form of protection. Right? right. Some information about confidential agents that the, the gang went out and killed. Yeah, no, but that that was that's what I mean, different degrees. And then yes. there was a, a, a radioactive core of sorts. Yes. Uh, and that just involved the FBI um, where you had John Conley. They succeeded in super uh, compromising and corrupting John Conley's supervisor of the organized crime unit, an agent by the name of, of John Morris. And that was brilliant because, again, on paper, administratively, uh, a supervisor is a check and balance. If yes. you have a, an, an informant handler who's the term is going native, is getting too involved with 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 the criminal informant. Um you know, supervision is supposed to like pull that back in. That's a guardrail of sorts. Yes, yes. So it's brilliant to take him out in, in, in terms of corrupting him. They did that with John Morris. Those were the two uh, most intimately involved, uh, I'll say members of the Bulger gang. Um, and this, this went on for how many years? We're talking, uh, it began in 75. Um, it blew up. 15 or 16 years later. Wow. So, I mean, this is embedded culture at times of corruption inside the FBI organized crime yes. group. And there are various other Boston law enforcement agents who are accepting Christmas gifts and bribes yes. from these guys. Yes. So, you know, in, in, in doing the research, Dick, before I met a, a famous author like yourself, I, I spoke to a source who's an was an undercover agent um, uh, in during the biker wars in Quebec, which, as you know, had hundreds of deaths. And mm -hmm. he said, yeah, you know, you got to do selective strategy. You got to attack the rock machine first and then you go after the Hells Angels because you don't have unlimited resources at that time. Was there any justification for this culture of corruption in terms of Boston at that time? There's none whatsoever. I mean, why not? In terms of the of the corruption, you, because they're the good guys, the cops. They're um, you can't be doing that. I mean, in in theory, the idea of enlisting Whitey Bulger as an informant back in the mid 1970s that's what that's a good move. Um, but it it's not it, the the way the informant system is It's not a, a license to kill, which is what the FBI ultimately gave Bulger. Um, once it was corrupted, every the agents were so compromised. They were they had been bribed. They took money. They took gifts. They they leaked uh, informant information. There was blood on their hands. That's it. It is the massive example of what not to do and how it's not supposed to be to be managed. Um, it was a selective strategy because the you know the government, the highest levels of government, made it clear with the Italian mafia was the highest priority that yes. became a cover of sorts for them to continue and maintain the corruption with with whitey bulger i, I had an amazing interview uh, over the years and he's in our books with uh, a, a higher a, a deputy uh, super uh, agent in charge of the boston office who in the 80s uh, was supervising the organized crime squad and and he got wind of, of the corruption and he tried to blow the whistle on it. Uh, the corruption involving, you know, John Morris and John Conley. Yes. Yes. Um, and it didn't go, it didn't, it, you know, because I think 
everyone had so bought into the to the payoff, the return. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to. It was like, see no evil, hear no evil. Let's just get the results, which is bringing down the Anjulo crime family. If that's the you know the benefit, um, he was he uh, he gave me like a a, a less you know like informant one hundred and one lesson uh, when he finally spoke to me about. And his loyalties was with the FBI because he would just say Bulger's ruining the FBI. Uh, and the problem is he is in we're talking about now the mid 80s now. Right. He, said, he was explaining to me that Whitey Bulger is now the most powerful gangster in Boston. You go after a guy like that. You don't have him as your informant. He's the top guy. It's yes. what it's all about. And he then described the problem is people like, especially John Connolly, have gone native is what he's called it. Yeah, they, and, they, they effectively became untouchables, those guys. Yeah. Now, the, the, the other thing, again, I'm holding up your book because I want people who are watching this to really get hold of Dick's book. It is brilliant. He writes it with his colleague Gerard O'Neill. They worked on this for decades, a number of other books as well, best-selling books, but this is a stunning expose of it. You also talk about the political corruption because all this time that's going on here, Bulger has a brother who's in the political establishment. Tell right. us a little bit about him, please. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes this a Boston story, you know. Unbelievable to anyone non-Bostonian. Yeah, because uh, as, you know, as as Whitey Bulger rose to the uh, highest levels of the underworld and became the most powerful gangster in Boston, his younger brother, Bill, um, had a similar rise to power in public office and politics. So they were both at the top of their game at the same time in the mid 80s. Bill Bulger was the president of the state Senate, arguably the most powerful position in Massachusetts. Um, and even if, you know, you know, they just it, the atmospherics of it all were were just paralyzing for uh, those in politics and public life, and also those in um, in in law enforcement. In law enforcement, there was this atmospheric um, concern and culture that if you kind of went after Whitey, uh, you might see your budget cut. Um, by the led state legislature, you right. know, backroom hands of Bill Bulger. Whether real or not, it didn't matter. That was the- it had that impression. Um, impression. Again, just to jump in, um, you know, just so I'm, I'm not seen as picking on Boston, I'm gonna get, you know, shouted at by Massachusetts people. Up in Canada, the Liberal Party in Quebec has similar issues with really high-ranking Sicilian mafia guys and Liberal Party senators back in this late 80s, excuse me, late 90s, early 2000s, where you're like, no, hang on a second. They both got the same last name. They're both from the same village in Sicily. What's going on here? And it's that sense of untouchability that that political connections bring to mobsters. Right. And that was a dominant force throughout the 80s and into the 90s in Boston. So the mid 90s, it, it implodes. Mm -hmm. Bulger goes on the run, this extraordinary, it almost becomes popular myth across America, who's seen Whitey Bulger. Tell us about those 16 years where he's on the run. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and again, he was alerted to the uh, uh, sealed indictment by none other than John Conley. Hold um, on just a second. I'm sorry, I missed that in your book. What, like, so he goes on the run because the FBI agent tells him that they're They've got something. Yeah, and, and this is amazing about John Conley's access and power, uh, both um, 
staying power because he'd actually yes. retired from the FBI, become a corporate security chief, but he, he kept his lines open at the FBI. He was monitoring. There was a whole new team, a whole new generation of, of federal prosecutors who were determined to indict because, again, he's the biggest game in town. Yes. yes. The mafia was in decline. And so uh, Connolly kept his pulse on that investigation through his own sources. He learned that Bulger had been indicted. He tipped Whitey off in 1995 in January, and Whitey hit the road, uh, not to be seen until 2011. And there's a great line by one of your colleagues, one of the journalistic colleagues. He he does, he he looks at the FBI quote progress report. They, the FBI brings out a report every year on trying to find Whitey Bulger, and he says they weren't a progress report; they're a failure report. Yeah, you, exactly. you still haven't caught the guy. Yeah. So for 16 years, and and there was one example where uh, finally the Boston law enforcement wakes up and says, "Hang on, what has been going on?" And they're prevented by this culture of corruption among the FBI to really prosecute John Conley. Tell us a little bit about that, please, Dick. Well, there's it was just this, um, you know, this tangled up law enforcement with com competing loyalties and complete competing ad agendas at war internally with itself. Um, you had, again, leftovers from, you know, it's, it's almost like history, the turning the page. You had leftovers from one generation determined to keep the lid on and protect, um, you know, the people who may have gotten, or, or at least, you know, minimize the damage. Um, and then you had a new team that was determined to trying to get to the bottom of it. Um, and, and, and part of this had to do with, you know, how, how hard and how far to go after John Conley and John Morris, uh, and re, re, revealing their corruption, um, or, and then, the, you know, the FBI, ultimately their spin on everything became, um, and I, I've always had a problem with this is, is, is their effort to spin it as two bad apples. In, in the FBI yes. world, that that's the reason for this breakdown. Instead of the systemic corruption and the culture of corruption that had been established even before they got, you know, Morris and Conley got going. You mentioned the Christmas gifts, the list of dozens of Boston law enforcement, yeah. you know, both inside and outside the FBI taking cash. Yeah. Um, I, I know you're, you're, you're jumping to another interview, but I just want to ask you, um, your book, uh, yours and Gerard's book, is turned into Black Mass, yeah. uh, a movie featuring Johnny Depp, an amazing performance by Johnny Depp, really something an Oscar winning uh, or should have been an Oscar winning um, uh, performance. What was it like to work in a Hollywood movie and, and play yourself? You at one point you were acting as yourself, I believe. Yeah, no, I mean, there are a lot of different feelings and uh, uh, in, in, in that experience. I mean, one was was, you know, watch, watching this work come to life in a, in a, in a new way, in a, in a new medium um, and also having to um, become comfortable with with what movies do to true stories because um, it's an adaptation. I mean, yes. um, it's it's not true. Uh, the movie is an adaptation. It's a dramatization. Um, there's plenty in the movie that is made up. And as a journalist and a nonfiction person, um, that gave me the willies in the beginning and stuff like that. Wait, wait, they didn't hit. They never said this or yes. this never happened. Wait, you've moved the chronology around here. And I had to get used to, well, if you're going to allow them to adapt your book, um, um, then you have to let go in the sense that they only have 120 minutes to tell 25 years of mob history or, you know, the stories uh, 
history and whatnot. Um, and accept and, and always speak of it as an adaptation or a dramatization, not the absolute truth. Um, there's a famous story about another author who wrote, um, you know, a, a book and then they made it into a movie and the movie came out very differently from the book. And a, and a friend of the author said, aren't you mad? Look, look what they've done to your book. You know, aren't you upset? And the author uh, said, um, uh, look, uh, he held up his book and said, they haven't done anything to my book. My book is my book they've made a movie. And so that helped me um, settle down a little bit. Yes, uh, because I have to say, my my complaint about the film was that it it made it seem like two bad apples. Yeah. And I understood why That's they it. needed to do it dramatically. But there, there wasn't that pushback against these guys. The FBI was embroiled with these guys and the pushback was coming from outside the agency. You just, I mean, that was my chief concern about the film as well. Yeah. My chief concern. I know you got to go, but if you don't mind wrapping up what you've described as the biggest case, the biggest case of an enforcement scandal in U.S. law enforcement. Yeah. What's, the, the, what's the takeaway? Well, I think uh, the takeaway is is is, is while informant and informant information um, is a centerpiece of any law enforcement agency's, you know, mission and stuff i mean and especially at the fbi they really rely on, on informants and the use of informants um i think a huge takeaway is how challenging and tricky and dangerous it is and how quickly it can go bad um and and no matter how how look how good it looks on paper in terms of any kind of um you know checks and balances yes. to oversee it um it's all about the execution uh, and the relationships and, and the personal relationships. Um, and, you know, it, it went so off the rails here. And, and so it's just so high risk. And I just don't think, I mean, I, that's what I learned a lot about in the takeaway and, and how enormously challenging it can be. Um, and it's, it, it's just, it, it's a horror show that this case, that this instance of corruption went on for so long. It wasn't a single case that was compromised and then it was over. It became a way of life here. Um, yeah, for, for for me, the, the the three word takeaway that I would have from 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 listening to you and reading your book and watching the movie, uh, uh, the adaptation of your book, is license to kill. Yeah, yeah. The FBI, what... the corrupted FBI, gave these guys the targets and then said, "Hey, you know, not a problem if they kill these guys." Extraordinary. That that is the truth. That's the extreme. That's the worst case scenario of of the informant, uh, you know, work that's done. Is, is the agency provides the informant a license to kill. Um, and that's what informant supervision or whatever the framework might be, has to be guard against in, exactly. in an extreme way. Dick, thank you for your time this morning. It's, it's mind blowing. Thank you for this book and your other six books. Uh, it's an honor to speak with a, uh, a man like yourself. Really, really appreciate you coming on Crimeways this morning. Hey, it's Declan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Crime Waves called A License to Kill about the mobster Whitey Bulger and his corruption of the FBI. Now, a quick note, Dick Lair has a new book, White Hot Hate, a true story of domestic terrorism in America's heartland. It's coming out in a couple of weeks and you'll find it on Amazon 
or frankly, anywhere that you can buy a good book, like a small, independent bookstore. If you like this episode or the podcast, please follow us or subscribe on social media like YouTube or Apple Podcasts. It's hugely important. But thank you again for your company, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Crime Waves.